This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I am here today with Doug Jufri and Patrick Lukau to discuss our some opinions that we recently released on the Inflation Reduction Act, which is we're recording today on August 16th at about 2 o'clock p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard, and it should be signed within the next 30 to 45 minutes by President. Doug, Patrick, how are both of y'all? Doing well, thanks. Doing well, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have y'all back. You're just uh, catching up on on our summer activities and realizing that Patrick is much faster than most podcast guests in terms of marathon times on this call. I, I won't drop his time for, for fear of inflating his ego. It's nice to have y'all back and it's nice that, that the summer is wrapping up, at least for those of us in Houston, but those of you up in the Northeast are more pleasant, enjoying more pleasant weather. Well, the big news of this kind of summer, at least for, for all of us paying attention to energy markets, was the Inflation Reduction Act. And we wanted to have a conversation here early on just, just to understand specifically what it means for North America power markets, what what is new in the legislation, and what, what the um, legislation extends in terms of precedent agreement, government support for some of the clean energy or just general power market ambitions. So, so Patrick, maybe if you can get us started just kind of framing what the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA is, we'll probably refer to it from here on, means for us. Yeah, for sure. In terms of North Carolina power. We've been, we've been digging in over the last couple of weeks. It's been a flurry. It's a big bill. It's, it's difficult, but it, it came about at the end of July Earlier this summer, we had all thought big federal climate legislation wasn't going to happen. It seemed like the prospects were dimmed, um, but there were a lot of folks working behind the scenes and it seemed like Senators Manchin and Schumer came to a compromise and released it at the very end of July. And, and we've been digging in since then. We're, Doug and I are pretty focused on the power pieces of it. There are a number mm -hmm. of other pieces of the legislation. But we have a lot of thoughts on the the tax credit extensions. Um, new technologies are eligible for tax credits. I think that's that might be a theme of our conversation as it's very financial focused. There's not a lot of regulations or mandates in this bill because of the constraints of budget reconciliation. Um, but despite that, I think they've crafted a compromise bill that is still quite substantial and will have big impacts on the electricity and, and broader energy markets over the decades to come. But before we get into the extensions, what are some of the new things that the previously policy left unaddressed? Uh, from, from the power side of things, I've, a few of the big new things, uh, standalone battery storage now qualifies for a tax credit. Uh, there are big tax credits for existing nuclear power. Yeah, I know you said you didn't want to talk about the extensions, but there are important extensions for the existing solar and wind resources. Okay. Uh, and one one detail that I think is important is solar now qualifies for the production tax credit. 
um, which will play a big role in both the economics of solar, but also how those tax credits impact the energy markets going forward. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on the production tax credit itself? Yeah, so the, the two big types of tax credits are the investment tax credit, the ITC, and the production tax credit, the PTC. And the ITC is, is a, a one-time 30% uh, tax credit that's historically been viewed as most helpful for very capital-intensive resources. Uh, so as, as solar has historically been very expensive to build, um, the, the ITC was advantageous, but as costs have come down, uh, and now with the eligibility of the PTC, um, they will be able to generate a credit with each unit of energy produced from solar panels. Um, and that that has the potential to improve the economics pretty substantially. Okay. And, and Doug, I want to bring you in sooner than later, so, so we'll go ahead and bring you in now. But we, we've talked many times before on um, just overall North America power markets. As we're looking at this, you know, Pat Patrick's mentioned some of the technologies. How should we think about it in terms of power markets and its impact on the traditional power markets that, that we've, you know, we've all been paying attention to? Well, I think importantly, a couple of things are uh, very likely now. The extension of these tax credits is going to allow the industry to avoid the historical boom-bust cycle that we've seen wind and solar go through. These tax credits have been allowed to lapse in the past, and we've seen industry rush to complete projects, capture the tax credits. And even though they were subsequently extended, um, there is a lull in industry development because you know they were approaching that cliff. Uh, with these long-term extensions, we'll likely get out of that boom-bust cycle. It's clearly going to lead to an uptick in development. There are some headwinds facing the industry in terms of supply chains, but mm -hmm. the economics now are very clear. Wind and solar are already were largely the cheapest or lowest cost forms of new supply in the markets. This has kind of solidified that. And so wind and solar look very strong. It's going to do things like encourage corporate procurement to grow even more aggressively than it already has been and likely lead to some states increasing their decarbonization ambitions, given that the cost of that the price tag to state rate payers is going to be lower. And then it maybe gets a little bit nuanced, but the production tax credit now being eligible solar can complicate the way wholesale markets operate in that developers or owners now have an incentive to bid into energy markets at negative prices with their solar, where historically they didn't really have that incentive. And that could lead to, you know, declining, it was going to lead to declining wholesale power prices anyway, but likely some increased negative pricing. And that has all sorts of knock-on effects for the industry. And you mentioned that there, there's some, we're avoiding the boom bust with these long-term tax credits. How long-term are we talking? On the books, it's through 2032, but there's an important stipulation in there that until the power sector greenhouse gas emissions decline 75% below 2022 levels, these tax credits stay in place. And so it's the latter of you know reaching that point or 2032. So there's potential for these to be multi-decade tax credit extensions. Now, that doesn't mean that a future Congress couldn't pull these back. Mm -hmm. um, but at least as it's written today, when President Biden signs it, um, these could be on the books for many decades, multiple decades. 
And what's the measurement of that 75%? Is it over 12 months? Is it over 24 months of the 22 levels, 2022 levels? I, I think it's annual emissions and it's, it's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I, I think that's important because historically when we've been talking about emissions, a lot of the community has referenced 2005 emissions. Mm -hmm. um, and emissions have fallen pretty substantially in the electric power sector from 2005 already. Um, so ba basing that emissions reductions on the lower level of this year makes it a, a much more uh, long-term stringent policy. Okay. And so we don't know that number yet, that not since we haven't gotten through this year, but presumably it's a, how does that number compare? And I'm sure it's higher than the pandemic year, but in terms of the five-year average, is 2022 looking to be above or below emissions? 2022 will be, it will be well below 2005 levels. Um, I, uh, I would hesitate to guess at this point where it will come in relative to last year, um, but we're, we're continuing to see coal plants retire year after year and coal plants just generate so many more emissions than gas plants mm -hmm. if we're talking about fossil resources so those retirements play a big role in the trajectory of emissions in the power sector it, yeah where it seems to be shaping up is it may come in uh, looking a bit like 2021 you know on the one hand as patrick mentioned you know coal plant retirements we continue to see them Coal generation is actually down about 5% through June relative to last year. Uh, but on the other hand, wholesale electricity demand is about 3% higher, and natural gas plants have largely ramped up to meet that. So um, on net, I think we'll probably see something similar, but there's still almost half a year left to play out, so still okay. to be seen. And on the technologies, Patrick, you mentioned that there's a lot of new support for batteries. What will that look like in terms of when this gets rolled out? I, in the past, there's been support for batteries, but batteries have had to be tied to another resource on the same site. Um, and this this new qualification allows standalone storage, which I think just gives uh, developers and utilities a lot more flexibility in terms of where they can install these resources. Um, and it it allows them to play a big role in capacity and potentially other energy energy market services. And is it all focused at the utility level or does the consumer one were to put batteries on, on their residence or corporate um, investment in batteries or solar? Is that does the bill capture that more, more personal or residential investment as well? I believe there are tax credits for residential solar. That's not something we've focused our early analysis on yet. Okay. So, Doug, as we're looking across all of the power regions within the U.S., is it all going to hit everyone pretty equally? Might certain, whether it be Kaiso or ERCOT or any of them, um, or are there some that, that have maybe been you know, further ahead and will benefit disproportionately, or perhaps laggards that will catch up more quickly than, than previously forecast on their lower carbon ambition? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we'll see uh, an uptick in development where it's been strong in the middle of the country, uh, where we've seen, you know, the wind belt has been very strong, you know, where there are strong solar resources in Texas. I'm sure that will this will encourage um, additional solar development. I mean, Patrick made the point earlier that this option to take the PTC makes solar's economics all the more compelling. And we'll continue to see that drive investment in solar broad-based 
the, the issue is that the ambitions are already so strong in the Northeast mm -hmm. and in the West Coast. <clears throat> so there is not much more room to move here in terms of, you know, encouraging their ambitions. It's now going to be about how do we overcome the hurdles that are uh, facing headwinds for the industry, things like the supply chain issues, which this is going to exacerbate. And we also have, you know, Europe getting more aggressive with their renewable goals. I think they're now looking from 40% by 2030 to 45% by 2030 renewable energy. So Europe's renewable ambitions are growing. At the same time, we'll see more ambition here. And that's just going to exacerbate some of the supply chain issues. We also have the well-known issues of transmission and generation right. siting, interconnection queue delays. So this all needs to be sorted out to really unlock the potential of the IRA, the full potential. So how how do how does that get sorted out? And, and I know you flagged a couple of things. Let's start with supply chain. I mean, that you, you described them as hurdles, and, and and we can get over hurdles. What are the? Is it time that allows us to get over these hurdles, or, or do, do you think there can be quicker response as a result of this act? Well, I think time is going to be an important component here. You know, we just need to kind of scale up some manufacturing. Fortunately for the solar industry, we do have the 24-month uh, moratorium on the import duties from Vietnam, Malaysia, et cetera. So there is some help that's happening there that was delaying some projects for the first half of the year. You know, first and second quarter of 2022, we actually saw a slowdown in wind, solar, and battery deployments in the U.S., Presumably that will uptick, but you know I think it's going to take time for supply chains to ramp up and allow to be able to meet this increasing demand. Some of the other issues like transmission siting and the interconnection queues, FERC has been very active over the first half of this year and even the beginning or the end of last year where they've issued a number of uh, notice of proposed rulemaking. They issued Order 881 that will presumably expand or uh, allow the grid to be used more efficiently, that can unlock some capacity so you can integrate more wind and solar. But even that is not going to be implemented for two to three years at best. So the actions are being taken. These are necessary steps, but the implementation and moving this through the different regional transmission organizations, you know, these are multi-year uh, developments. Okay. And, and Patrick, you, you use the word compromise a few minutes ago when we were talking, you know, are there some, you know, in addition to, to some of the hurdles that the Doug mentioned, are there some other areas that we would look to see addressed um, either in future legislation or future policy that, that didn't make it into this bill that, that would help on, on the, uh, the, the lower carbon agenda? Yeah, I I'm one of the the really challenging pieces for decarbonizing the economy as a whole is the other sectors outside of the U.S. power sector. I mean, the IRA included pretty substantial incentives for home electrification, things like heat pumps, hot water heaters. Um, there's an extension of electric vehicle tax credits. Mm -hmm. um, but it's unclear to me if those tax credits will be sufficient to really drive substantial decarbonization of those sectors. Uh, momentum is building, um, but I think there will need to be continued progress on uh, both enhancing those incentives, but also just thinking about the, the best ways to push forward on those sorts of uh, tough decisions that aren't always as purely economic based as sometimes we think about how the electric power sector operates. Um, so that's a challenge and it's definitely a, a policy challenge as well as a, a technology challenge. 
And does it feel, I mean, there's been a lot of positive press uh, around this from, from many of us, from, from many of our colleagues and peers at other organizations, that this is the, uh, I saw something from Bill Gates on one of the social media channels about how transformational this is. Is it as, trans as transformational as social media would indicate? Or are we, is this really the breakthrough that we've been looking for? I think it is, it's definitely a big deal. As Doug was saying, like this is a, a multi-decadal policy and we have not seen a congressional legislative agreement to do something like that in the past. And I think the long-term stability of those tax credits will go a long way. Um, so I think there's there's reason for hope and there's reason to be excited about this bill, but there there is further work to be done. It's not the last bill. We don't expect it to be the last federal climate legislation. More things will have to follow up. I will say this, uh, the, the, the legislative part of it to me is so interesting and important because we've had so many executive orders over the past however many years that have risk of getting overturned over the next, you know, four years or two years or whatever the, the timeline happens to be when it comes out. And the idea that this has staying power, I think is huge relative to other activity. So in terms of the the, the timeline, we, we've talked about some of the long-term and, and the commitment of the policies. How about immediate term? When, when Patrick, do, do we start to see it, you know, if, if it's signed here in the next couple minutes, as we assume it will be, when does it start to, you know, hit us in, in terms of either, you know, for, from the perspective of utility commissions or utilities themselves or consumers. The the vast majority of the tax credits we've been talking about today go into effect right away. Um, okay. And a, a number of them will go into effect next year. So I think it's it's time for utility commissions, utilities, developers to start thinking about what this means today and thinking about how to plan for this expansion. There, there are challenges that we've been talking about, but the economics will shift, I would say quite immediately for a lot of these resources. And Doug, in terms of some of the corporate strategy uh, of these utilities, does this for the most part accelerate existing ambition or, or is this gonna, require a whole new think for, for, for certain companies out there. Yeah, I think it's a lot about accelerating current plans. I mean, one of the statistics we've put in the paper is, you know, when you look at the current inventory of coal plants or owners that have announced an intention to retire this decade, it's somewhere on the order of 50 gigawatts of coal has already been announced. It's, you know, when you expand your view and look at you know what their plans are. They may not have named particular plants. You know that can can grow to 75 to 80 gigawatts of coal that is likely to retire this decade. Uh, with this continued support for wind and solar, that's going to put a lot more pressure on the existing coal fleet. So I think we're going to see the transition that's already underway, where it's it makes financial sense and it has made financial sense for a lot of utilities to retire their existing coal and build new wind and solar. It's actually often cheaper to do that. This mm -hmm. kind of doubles down on that. And so it's gonna you know, kind of force their hand and accelerate the decision-making. That is gonna lead to challenges for the power sector that we've been talking about is more of a, you know, toward the end of the decade issue for some markets where your coal fleet is shrunk to such a small level you still need some dispatchable, reliable capacity to be available. And that's largely the role gas plays. 
what we were thinking is 2030 could come much sooner for some markets. And we've seen the Midwest market, MISO, kind of encountered that this summer where they ran a planning auction and suddenly realized they could be short of supply this summer. So I think the timelines get uh, compressed here, given how much incremental wind and solar is largely expected to be developed. Okay. And, and Patrick, you, you mentioned that uh, a lot of this, this legislation is financial focused. You mentioned the tax credit, that it opens up a lot of funding for batteries or solar or wind. Are there enough projects to accept that funding today? Or are we going to be working to put together the ideas and the projects over the next months and years? Or you know, is that another hurdle for us? I think that the tax credits will likely support a number of new projects. Uh, the challenge is the the regional specificity. There, there are just so many regions across the country that have more they want to build than can build right now. Um, so I, in some regions, it's going to be an expansion. In others, it's just going to be more more fuel on the fire to continue building as fast as they can. And on the, the, the negative power comment from you a little earlier, Doug, can you, can you walk me through how that plays out? How does one bid against negative prices and, and how does a consumer benefit from negative prices? Yeah, so if you think of it this way, if you're an owner of a generation asset and you're using the production tax credit, you're paid for the megawatt hour of or kilowatt hour of energy that you produce. And so you have an incentive to be producing. And when you're bidding into a, an auction, into a market, you're willing to bid up to the negative value of that production tax credit. So if it's at $25, you'll be willing to bid into the market, you know, to $24.99. You have some value that you're earning, even the negative values because the production tax credit is, is revenue you can gain. So what we see already in markets which have, you know, very high wind penetration, you see these negative prices. Now, the one of the implications of that is that it's created a challenging environment for the existing nuclear fleet. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, been no short shortage of a press about, you know, early retirements of existing nuclear. One of, I think, the key elements in this bill is this new production tax credit for existing nuclear. So there had been, you know, some tax credits on the books for new advanced reactors. This is for the existing fleet. So beginning in 2024, they can earn, um, I think, up to $15 per megawatt hour up to that. And you know, the average cost to generate power with the nuclear power plant today is, you know, roughly around $30. So this is a very significant subsidy for the existing nuclear fleet. And this is staying on the books through 2032. So I think the idea here is to help them navigate what is likely to be kind of a challenging economic environment, given the amount of wind and solar we're likely to see. And the reality is, to the extent that we want to maintain that existing fleet, this is a tax credit that I imagine could be extended at some point in the future. And you said existing several times. This is not going to incentivize new nuclear. It's more an extension of nuclear in terms of that base load. This particular new uh, zero emission nuclear tax credit is qualifies existing resources. Um, there are other tax credits that are available for uh, advanced reactors and, and module reactors. Okay. Outside of this bill or, or within this bill? But the uh, 
The infrastructure bill that was passed last year had okay. some support for uh, nuclear, and I think within this bill there are some uh, there are tax credits for more advanced or for new reactors. Okay. All right, and, and Patrick, you know, uh, we're talking, you know, at, at the moment that, that the bill is being signed, so I'm sure that that we haven't updated any of our forecasts, but but so, so I'm not going to ask you for any decimal points or any detail, but but conceptually thinking, you know, as we look out 20, 30 years as a result of the, these new rules, how do you expect our forecast to change? What what, what rises at the expense of what? In terms yeah, of the there, technologies, there are two key changes that I would highlight. Number one, I think this Inflation Reduction Act represents, I, I would say, a new form of federal greenhouse gas policy. Historically, a number of us have considered carbon pricing, renewable mm -hmm. portfolio standards, uh, more mandate-driven policies. Uh, and it seems like the evidence has shown us that incentive-driven policies like this are where the the politics lies. And I think that's going to influence how we think about the future of policy developments in our outlook. The The second piece that I was going to mention is, yeah, it will expand the degree to which we have new renewable energy resources in our long-term outlooks. I think it will be modest uh, because of both the constraints we've mentioned, and we already had quite a bit of expansion of wind and solar in our existing outlooks. Um, the, the resources are looking good. This just makes them better. But there will be a, a further expansion. Further expansion and an acceleration, uh, I assume, that maybe it pulls some of the numbers forward? Yeah, the the one of the challenges for the industry was the, the phase out of the tax credits that was planned. And this will make the, especially the near term, the next five years, um, have a, a pretty substantial incremental federal incentive that wasn't there before. Okay. And, and Doug, maybe if you'll help, you know, kind of put this into context globally, was if we look at the IRA, you know, relative to other policy, and I know we're focused on North America today, but was there a blueprint that was leveraged in some of these ideas and, and or would other countries you think that have similar low carbon emissions, the U.S. look to this bill to say, hey, maybe that's an idea worth copying or leveraging or adapting to ourselves? No, I think we were last year, you know, with a Build Back Better plan, I think mm -hmm. we're attempting to adopt more of a strategy that's pursued globally, which is, you know, some mandates about, you know, the shares of clean energy that need to be procured by utilities every year. You know, so there was an element of Build Back Better called the Clean Energy Payment Program, where you know utilities would have been incentivized to increase the amount of clean energy they're purchasing every year that ultimately was dropped from the bill they they couldn't get agreement on it this has gone back to a long standing federal policy I mean, we've had the production tax credit since 1992 as patrick you know mentioned a moment ago this seems to be what we can get compromise and agreement on you know with tax credit extensions again and again it you know and it tends to be or it can be in the past has been seen as bipartisan. A lot of the renewable development is actually in red states. So, you know, you, you tend to find historically that there's been bipartisan support for it. I don't think the rest of the world is pursuing that approach. They're more of a, you know, mandate, some targets for renewables like the EU is doing now, again, saying adopt a 45% renewable energy by 2030 target. 
That kind of policy we see at the state level in the U.S., but not at the federal level. Okay. And maybe one one more question and maybe a comment from each of you on it, but what, what about coal? Well, obviously, Manchin was the key, a key participant in this, if not the key, and he's from a coal state. So, so, and we've talked about the rise of renewables and the retirement of coal. So, so what does this mean for coal-fired uh, generation explicitly, and, and why would coal, why, what would happen that allowed Manchin to get on it? We'll get so supportive. I, I mean, I think Manchin is a, a smart senator, and I think he he understands where the future is going. Uh, there were some some compromise provisions in this bill, uh, incremental incentives for what they called energy communities. So mm-hmm. in in locations where there used to be uh, coal activities, for example, you get extra incentives to build new wind and solar facilities. And I think things like that are are where the future lies. The the economics of these resources are just going to get better and better as compared to coal in the future. Yeah, and, and just you know broadly on the state of the coal fleet and where they were going. You know, the average age of a coal plant that's retired over the last decade has been forty nine years. Um, about two thirds of the existing coal fleet today is going to be forty nine or older by twenty thirty. So the fleet is old, it's getting older. Absent any pressure from cheap natural gas or renewables, we would have seen an uptick in coal retirements just given the age of the fleet. With you know the additional incentives here for wind and solar, their costs were already coming down. It's in our view going to accelerate it. And you know we'll likely see in our view, the coal fleet shrinks by 50, 60% this decade, uh, perhaps more. All right, we're just on the other side of 2.30, and so this thing must be getting signed here now or very shortly. But thank you both for joining me on short order, and I look forward to watching the uh, the activity play out after this moves forward. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Hill. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.